Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, as part of our series about the future of the Union, we're looking at Wales. Should we be thinking much harder about the possibility of Welsh independence? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics, and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Joining me in Helen today to talk about Wales is Dan Wincott. He's professor at Cardiff Law School. He also runs the Welsh Governance Centre there, and he has been studying public opinion and politics in Wales. Dan, we've done an episode on Scotland and an episode on Northern Ireland. And in those cases, we're just going to sketch out a brief historical background before we get on to the the essence of now. But in those cases, we were talking about a union, the Anglo-Scottish Union, the Anglo-Irish Union at the back of the Northern Ireland story. Of course, in the Irish case, there was conquest before that. But the Anglo-Welsh story is not the story of a formal union. It really is the story of a conquest. If we had to kind of characterise the foundations of this story, the deep origins, how would you sum up the nature of the Anglo-Welsh relationship as a kind of historical phenomenon? Conquest, I think, is the right word with which to start. Conquest and then an assimilation, but an assimilation that was never wholly complete. The laws that integrated Wales largely, although not completely, into the English legal system were passed under Henry VIII, and they're formally known as the Laws in Wales Act. Interestingly, after the event, people sometimes call them the Act of Union between England and Wales. So there's a sense in which those later unions with Scotland and between Great Britain and Ireland get projected back into the history of Wales sometimes to add a kind of patna of union. But basically, it was a conquest and incorporation. We're all aware that in the Scottish case in particular, the union preserved features not just of Scottish culture and Scottish identity, but of Scottish political and legal system. And Scotland had and still has very separate kinds of institutions. How much of that is true in the Welsh case? There's, of course, the language, but how much is institutionally is true that there's a a separate Welsh way of doing things? There's a strong set of cultural institutions and I'm keen on the idea of not just nations, also all kinds of places as imagined communities, that Benedict Anderson notion that I recall actually hearing Colin Kidd talk about in an earlier episode on Scotland. The sense of Wales as an imagined community, I think, remains quite powerful, especially but not only around the language. Law is more complicated because the Laws in Wales Act were explicitly about English law and law through the medium of English being the form of law in Wales. But that was never completely achieved in many parts of Wales and in most of Wales through the medieval period. Welsh was the vernacular language. So trying to impose English language law in Welsh-speaking communities always kind of limited its reach and limited its grip so that customary practices continued. And they cast quite long legacies as well. 
the current local health board in West Wales is known as the Haldar Wealth Board. And Haldar was a king, a monarch in Wales in the late 900s. Haldar means Howl the Good. And he was known for having promulgated and codified a traditional set of Welsh laws in what is usually seen as quite a progressive form. So I think that's probably the oldest reference in the name of any health authority anywhere in in the UK. So it has a kind of currency even today. I think what's comparatively interesting about Wales and the Union is that first the conquest earlier and then effectively the legal annexation in the 1530s happened early enough in time that you might think that the assimilation of Wales into England would have happened in ways that would have left it with a less recognisable imagined community to use that language and less clearly identifiable Welsh culture. But I think what you can see from the beginning is that isn't the case and that it's not a straightforward annexation of Wales into England, that something not only culturally endures, but in some respects even legally until the 1830s and the ways in which the law was actually implemented. And I think it's quite striking that the Tudor dynasty itself, which brought the through Henry VIII, the legal annexation itself, was pretty keen on the idea of them being Welsh, particularly Henry VII was. And so that this idea that there was something being added to England coming out of Wales is something that I would say is there at the beginning and has endured. I think that's right. The integration of Wales into the English legal system was powerful and resented, but it wasn't a complete integration until, as you say, until 1830. The Court of Great Sessions in Wales was an institutionally separate set of structures, although it didn't include Monmouthshire, which was kind of treated as an English county and has created a long-standing sense of Monmouthshire as a kind of place between that I hear in qualitative uh, research that I've done recently, speaking to people in the Eastern Valleys, some of whom have a kind of British identity, articulate a British identity, which is not particularly Welsh, but not English, and comes from this sort of marches, this sort of place between sense. But even if you look at the classics around the foundation of the English legal tradition, that moment in 1830 is still remarked on as significant. So Dicey's colleague, Sir William Anson, who wrote the other great late 19th century legal textbook on the Constitution, a book called The Law and Custom of the Constitution, talks about the union between England and Wales only being complete when the Court of Great Sessions was abolished. So it sort of echoes through the history. And when should we date the beginnings of what we would now recognise as modern Welsh nationalism as a political movement? Is there a point in time that we can see this emerging as a distinct identity? Goodness, that's a really big question. I think there has been a sort of continuing sense of Welshness, which sometimes expresses itself through Britishness and through the idea of something like an idea of union that continues. If you're talking about political nationalism and that spreading 
into party politics. I think that comes through quite a lot later, probably in the 1960s, around the developments of the kind of new left in the 60s. There's also a resurgence of sub-state national identities. You see similar things in Belgium, for example, around the Dutch language. That's when the University of at Leuven switched from being a French medium to a Dutch medium university and a new French medium university was created. But I think it would be wrong to downplay the continuing significance of Welsh identity around things like the disestablishment of the Episcopalian or Anglican church in Wales in the early 20th century. There are moments and markers of redifferentiation as well as moments and markers of closer integration. It's a sort of ongoing disequilibrium, maybe, rather than something that ever really settles down. Yeah, I would actually think you could make a case for saying that you can see it by the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. And there's the parallel, as Dan's already suggested, with Scotland, where the questions of religion become very important. One of the things that we talked about with Colin Kidd, it's striking the ways in which the religious differences between England and, and Wales in the middle of the 16th century hadn't been as severe as they were with Scotland. They're obviously pretty crucial to the civil um, war. But when the issues come back at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, then there is this pressure for disestablishing the Anglican church. But I think as well, and I think that this has consequences for the ways that we might think then about both the 70s and now, once you move into a politics in the United Kingdom where there's a lot of conflict about the Union and the territorial composition of the Union, which obviously at the end of the 19th century is brought about by the Irish question, then you get Scottish questions and Welsh questions too, and you get this significant pressure for home rule all round. And I think that it's quite difficult to understand the rise of the Labour Party in the beginning of the 20th century without seeing its relationship to those questions about the Union. In a way, that was going to be my other sort of historical background question before we come on to devolution and its consequences for now, because an obvious difference between Wales and Scotland as opposed to Northern Ireland is in the Northern Irish case, the party political links that connect politics in Northern Ireland to Westminster have always been distant, whereas there has been a kind of cementing effect at different periods between Scotland and Westminster politics, but also Wales and Westminster politics, in the Welsh case, first through the Liberal Party and then through the Labour Party, though at different times, I think, Scotland, you know, the Scottish Labour connection was, for instance, much stronger in the 1990s. The Welsh Labour connection has been stronger at other periods. But how important, Dan, do you think that has been? Is the Labour Party in the 20th century, has it been, was it, one of the glues that held this together? I think that's right. You know, I think the presence of very significant Welsh Labour politicians was a critical element in tying the UK together in that period, which isn't to say that they weren't distinctively Welsh and always within the Labour Party in Wales, there's been a mixture of people who were kind of sceptical about emphasising Welsh distinctiveness and trying to create invent institutions that systematically recognise that distinctiveness and people who were strongly promoting those kinds of institutions. 
that echoes through particularly the post-war period with key figures actually sometimes doing both things. So, you know, I mentioned the Halva Health Board. There are a couple of other health boards that are connected to historic figures. Betsy Cadwallader in North Wales, who was a nurse towards the end of her life in Crimea and not much beloved of Florence Nightingale by all the historical accounts because she was seen as not really the right sort of person to be going abroad and caring for soldiers. And then in Gwent in, in Southeast Wales, it's the Anurin Bevan Health Board. So the area that includes Tradiga recognises Bevan and Bevan has a huge kind of political cultural significance in Wales. He's one of the few people in place of fear who actually talks about a British health service rather than the National Health Service, which is a helpfully ambiguous term with respect to the nation invoked. But the British Health Service suggests something rather different. And, you know, that moves through the post-war period, through to the consolidation of what were a variety of separately administered aspects of public policy that were administered in Wales, typically in Cardiff, in particular areas, to the creation in the 1960s of the Wales office, which reflected the separate administration of central government in Scotland through the Scottish office, but on a much smaller scale and over a much more restricted range of policy areas. You know, and that came about through internal Labour Party politics about how Wales should be administered. I think actually that the big macro story really of the 20th century and where we are now is really about Labour's relationship to the union. And you can see this in relation to Wales as much as in relation, I think, to Scotland. That period of stability that came, or relative political stability minus Northern Ireland, that came with the creation of Northern Ireland was a period when Labour moved away from an interest in devolution or home rule as it was then concerned. It wasn't going to become the home rule all around party after the First World War. And then as things started to unravel or at least get more complicated in the 1970s, it was Labour that ended up in the middle of the decade in power and having to struggle with the devolution questions and doing so without having an English majority. And its struggle led to the two failed referendums in 1979 and the end of that government. And then when Labour came back into power, in 1997, it set up the devolution settlements, or the first version of them anyway, where Wales was concerned. And then it's Labour's weakness in England from 2010 and from Scotland in 2011, I think, that is central to the situation in which we now find ourselves. So I mentioned in the 1990s, New Labour was quite a Scottish project in that many of its leading figures, Gordon Brown, Donald Dewar, Robin Cook and others, were there at the heart of government in Westminster. That Welsh connection was weaker in New Labour. But there is a view that some of the complacency of the Blair government about the consequence of devolution was fueled by a sense that this is kind of our project. It's a Labour thing. We have the people. You know, Donald Dewar is the, the sort of father of the nation. It wasn't so obvious the case in Wales. There weren't figures so central to the new Labour project. But there's a sort of historical memory that Labour and Wales go together. Do you think there was a complacency around that when we get to devolution in 1999 and the creation of the Welsh Assembly, that there was an assumption with the Labour government in Westminster that this would work out because it's a kind of Labour thing? Yeah, I think that's part of the story. Ron Davis was very, very important to the emergence of 
or the inclusion of Wales in that, and I think you're right, essentially Scotland-facing devolution project. Ron Davis did an enormous amount of work to make devolution happen in Wales, and there was an unfortunate personal incident which kind of took him out of the picture. But I think he would have been much more a sort of Donald Dewar figure. I mean, of course, Donald Dewar died suddenly, so there were those kind of personal breaks in both cases for different kinds of reasons. And then Labour in London did try to control devolution in Wales. So Alan Michael, the First Minister, was very much seen as a sort of new Labour, almost placed in Wales by London. And when he was replaced by Rodri Morgan, you then had a much more, maybe ironically, a much more assertively distinctive approach taken by Rodri Morgan. And that was the phase when the language of clear red water between Cardiff and London came up. And that was clear red water between two parts of the Labour Party. That wasn't clear red water between, you know, Labour and Conservative. I was wondering, Dan, what you think about the thought that the reason why the original formation of devolution in Wales with this real mess between what was the executive and the legislature, whether that was a, a function of the fact that for New Labour, Welsh devolution was an afterthought and that really what they thought they had to do, or what Blair in particular thought he had to do, was to try to put Scotland to bed. And then that is the reason why the devolution settlement in Wales has had to keep the politicians from both parties, because in the end it's obviously the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats initially that pushed changes through, have had to keep coming back to it. Yes, I think the first thing I'd want to do is really underscore the kind of background point that the past 20 years of devolution in Wales, it's been a period of continual high-level constitutional change, really quite remarkable transformation in the basic model, which, as you say, initially was a essentially a kind of large local government model, a body corporate model with no distinction between government and opposition. Um, you know, it was the, the assembly that governed, could only make secondary legislation and only in areas that were conferred on it by Westminster to what is now a Welsh parliament known as the Senate in the Welsh word which makes primary legislation on a reserve powers model. That change has been an enormous change, but it's also occupied an enormous amount of political energy and attention focused at the constitutional level rather than in terms of the practical business of making public policy. So I think that's an important point to make. I think you're right that that comes partly from Wales being a kind of an afterthought, but I think there are two other things which maybe pull in slightly different directions that we also need to think about in this part of the conversation. One is that the margin for devolution in Wales in that referendum in the late 1990s was tiny. And the referendum in Wales happened shortly after the pretty comprehensive victory in favour of devolution in Scotland. So that may well have conditioned the mood in Wales. And I think that both reflected an electorate that wasn't clearly in favour of devolution already and also maybe conditioned a sense of sort of hesitancy about going much further in the immediate term. So that's the first point. The second point is I think we need to get beyond 
just thinking about Labour Party politics if we if we want to think about the constitution and the devolution and the union. And I think it actually also applies to the internal territorial governance of England as well, which is that, to talk in maybe grandiose terms, but the UK state just doesn't do systematic constitutional reflection or reform. It's not in Whitehall's DNA. There's clearly a great deal of merit in constructing institutions that reflect the particular characteristics and the particular needs of specific areas. But I think the ad hoc, particular, asymmetric patterns of territorial governance that mark devolution, national devolution to Scotland and Wales and devolution to Northern Ireland, but also what's called city region devolution in England reflects a kind of governing ethos in in, in Whitehall that kind of shies away from grand theorizing, from trying to create a, a, a system. And it's one of the reasons why, although I think it makes sense to talk about a devolution settlement initially in Scotland in the late 1990s, I generally avoid talking about a devolution settlement in Wales. It feels more like a dispensation and it was it's never really been settled. And I think that's quite revealing about a kind of governing ethos at the centre. It's almost become a cliche now if you talk to Whitehall watchers to use this phrase, devolve and forget. And it now kind of motivates a no more devolve and forget and you know sometimes quite an abrasive form of assertion of central authority or at least you know that's how it feels i think for a lot of people in wales or scotland or maybe northern ireland as well talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the london review of books quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So two things more recently that have happened to shake this non-settlement, and we should talk about them both. One is Brexit and one is the pandemic. And Dan, you've written about both and you studied in detail some of what we can learn from each experience. So on Brexit, and this is a question for both of you, I don't know the answer to this question, but of course, Wales voted for Brexit, unlike Northern Ireland, unlike Scotland, like England, roughly similar proportions, close result, but for leave. Either what does the Brexit vote tell us about Wales or what does Wales tell us about the Brexit vote? What what can we learn from the Welsh part of this for what the UK state has gone through since? I think there's a unfortunate tendency to assume that places are homogenous. So, you know, a majority of people who voted in Wales voted to leave, but also, you know, roughly two in five people in Scotland voted to leave. And we talk about Scotland as a remain place. I've been in lots of conversations where people have said, oh, you know, London voted remain, 
including one at an event held in Stratford on the old Olympic site. And I was looking east and I was thinking, well, you know, I can see lots of lots of parts of London where the majority of people who voted didn't vote remain if I look that way. So I think we need to keep that sense that places aren't homogenous in our minds when we talk about this. And in particular in Wales, Wales is probably the part of Great Britain, possibly of the United Kingdom, where patterns of national identification are most complex. So we've got a mix of Welsh identity and British identity, and sometimes those combine in interesting ways. And for other people, they're in opposition to one another. There are quite a lot of people in Wales, according to not the census we've just done, but the previous one, about 20% of people living in Wales were born in England. And 12 some odd percent of them identify as English. So it's quite a complicated picture. And some research that I've done with Elsa Henderson and Richard Wynne-Jones and some other colleagues using a variety of data, but there's an article in Regional Studies that uses British election study data. And we use a, a measure of relative territorial identity. So looking at the balance between emphasizing Welsh identity and British identity in Wales. And there what we find is that there's a clear effect so that people who prioritize Welsh identity in Wales tended to vote Remain, whereas people who prioritise British identity in Wales tended to vote Leave. And there's a similar pattern in Scotland, but it's the other way around in England. In other words, people who emphasise British identity in England tended to vote Remain, whereas people who emphasise English identity tended to vote Leave. And that also suggests that Britishness isn't an identity that connects to the same political projects or attitudes in all parts of Britain. And we've got some very early work that a researcher at Cardiff, a lecturer now at Cardiff called Jack Larner has done, uh, which shows similar patterns in relation to attitudes to how well the Johnson administration has done during the COVID pandemic. So these identity patterns, I think, are quite important and quite complex and difficult to get to our kind of infrastructure of public attitudes survey work hasn't really been designed to drill down into these sorts of complex patterns of national identification. But with a bit of work, you can you can uncover it. One of the things that the Welsh vote does, the majority Welsh vote, because obviously Dan's quite right about the plurality of voters in every place, but what the majority Welsh vote does is blow apart the narrative about Brexit simply being a function of English nationalism. There's something much more complicated that's got to be explained when we recognise that the majority in Wales who voted, voted to leave. If you looked at Welsh politics in the years, let's say from like 2012, from the beginning of the rise of UKIP through to the referendum, so that those four preceding years, you would have predicted the outcome in Wales will be more similar to that in England than was the case in Scotland because UKIP was a phenomenon, comparable phenomenon in Wales to what it was in England. Uh, the Conservative Party were stronger in Wales too than they were in Scotland. And I, I think just as an aside from that, one of the really interesting things about Welsh politics is that it really does have multiple party competition, which you could argue is not true anywhere else in the Union, leaving the awkward question of Northern Ireland aside for a moment. What was striking in terms of what happened after the referendum was the way in which 
the Welsh government reacted as if Wales was like Scotland in having Brexit imposed upon it against its will and joining the Scottish government in the Miller case, which if it had been successful, you could have said was an appeal to try effectively to give Scotland and Wales a, a veto over what happened in relation to Article 50. And that would look to me like it had the potential for there to be quite some coming apart of the relationship between the the Welsh government and majority Welsh voters. But that isn't actually the way in which it's played out since. And then what we've seen since relatively early in the COVID crisis is the ways in which support for independence amongst the minority has grown, but perhaps more significantly, support for more devolution has grown. And I think that what we can see now in Wales is the way in which Labour voters have become much more pro-devolution and more devolution and are less equivocal about it. If if devolution had been an issue actually that divided Welsh Labour, I don't think it does in anything like the same way any longer. And I think in significant part, that's a function of the dominance of the Conservative Party in the UK Parliament as much as it is anything else. But I think that the autonomy of the Welsh government during the COVID crisis has reinforced that dynamic. Absolutely. And I think the point about genuine multi-party politics is a very important fact of political life in Wales. And the fact that there was a governing coalition, the One Wales Coalition, a Labour-applied coalition, which is its equivalent in, in Scotland, is close to unimaginable, I think. But I'm not sure that I would go quite as far as I I think, if I've understood you right, Helen, as you were going in talking about the kind of clarification of party political positions and identities through Brexit and the pandemic, because I think there's still a strong tradition of people who vote Labour, and certainly people who have voted Labour, maybe particularly in sort of post-industrial Wales, in, in the South Wales Valleys, some of whom would very clearly give priority to a British identity, sometimes actually connecting back to that remark I made before about Monmouthshire and people from the Eastern Valleys who have this kind of sense of not particularly strong Welsh identity, some of them, who also have quite a powerful connection to the monarchy, which is another sort of symbol of Britishness. And I think that has been an important element in Labour's dominance in the South Wales Valleys. And that doesn't sit particularly comfortably with a group that I might call kind of progressive nationalists, which covers quite a lot of the Labour Party, but also covers quite a lot of Plaid support. And, you know, that's a probably a growing part of the Welsh population, uh, which is connected to generational change in patterns of identification. The evidence seems to be that younger people, people who have grown up politically since devolution, are much more likely to give priority to a Welsh identity and have very little truck with Britishness. So I think there is that kind of division in Welsh Labour support still. And one of the ironies may be that the pandemic, which has had a really dramatic effect on, you know, the prominence, for example, of of Mark Drakeford, partly reflecting the real weakness of any distinctive media in Wales, particularly print media, 
you know, in Scotland and Northern Ireland, the London papers come out in a different edition that's specifically focused on those places, whereas Wales has the same editions of all the papers as England. And the regular BBC broadcast coronavirus updates that Mark Drakeford headed up got huge followings in Wales. And that's given Drakeford, certainly, you know, over the piece, quite a bump up in recognition and support. But a lot of that support will come from people who would probably end up voting Plaid. And I think there is a contrast with Scotland. I've got only a very little bit of kind of qualitative research that I did last summer. But the contrast being that there is still a group of more conservatively oriented, probably leave voting people in Wales who really do think that whilst one size shouldn't fit all across Europe, one size should fit all, certainly between England and Wales and probably across Britain through the coronavirus pandemic. So there is a bit more of a division there, whereas in Scotland, even leave voters who were kind of strongly anti-independence and the SNP's independence mission didn't think very much at all positive about Boris Johnson, but thought Nicola Sturgeon was doing a good job. And that caused them some sense of sort of conflict and, and anxiety. Whereas that group in Wales, I think, is still more minded to be, if not quite abolish devolution, certainly kind of cut it back and would articulate views about it just being, you know, more politicians and a waste of money. I think Wales is, in that sense, more divided than Scotland. Yeah, I wasn't trying to suggest that there's been a uniform shift towards a more pro-devolution position in Wales. I think part of the fact that it's got this so interesting multi-party politics is the fact that there is anti-devolution sentiment still in Wales in a way in which, as you say, Dan, there isn't so much in Scotland. And you can see that the Conservatives in Wales have moved to a position that's moving in that direction in a way in which they wouldn't dream of doing in Scotland. I think that it's just the question of the fact that the Labour vote is where you could argue, as I say, it was not evenly divided, but it really did pull in both directions. That The shift that has happened, if we say to ourselves, well, how do we explain the fact that there looks like an increase in support for independence and there looks like an increase in support for greater devolution? Who are those voters who shifted those voters look like they've been Labour voters? These are two questions that are connected, but how soft do you think is the shift towards Welsh independence as opposed to greater devolution? How much is that a function of relatively recent short-term trends? And the other thing that the pandemic has done is it has raised a border question. I mean, the the idea of the Welsh-English border is real. We're not just talking about imagined communities here. We're talking about periods where the question of whether people could travel across the border and for what purpose became acute. Has that changed anything? Has the raising of a border question changed anything in how people think about the wider union? On the question of independence, there has been a much more extensive set of conversations around around independence, and that's been growing for a while, uh, certainly pre-pandemic. So there's a non-party campaign for Welsh independence called Yes, Cymru. And over the last few years, every time the Welsh national football team has played a home game in Cardiff, 
there's been a march from the city centre to the city of Cardiff Stadium behind a Yes Cymru banner. You know, when I go out for my pandemic walks locally, I see their We Red stickers, the Yes Cymru stickers are in lots of places. And I think that does pick up partly on this kind of generational change. One of the phrases that gets thrown around a lot in the discussion in Wales now is the idea of people being indie curious. And I think that conveys some of the sense of an appetite for more. And I think more devolution is still the kind of position that would probably carry the day if it could be made into a reality. But I think the sense is that that's more devolution, whatever that means, but kind of leaning towards independence rather than on the other side of that choice. I think it is affected quite a lot by discussion of independence in Scotland. You know, the idea of being left in a kind of rump England and Wales sort of concentrates minds, at least in this kind of political debate space, because there's not a lot of detailed work on what independence would actually mean and how it might work in practice as yet. I mean, I think that the crucial thing that's going on is the politics of the whole union and it reverberates all the way through it, though obviously Northern Ireland has its own quite specific internal dynamics as well. And it goes back to what we were discussing earlier about the Labour Party. So long as it's very difficult to see how the Labour Party can win a general election at Westminster, there is going to be increased desire amongst non-Labour voters in Scotland and Wales, either for independence or for greater devolution because the non-conservative parties that they may wish to vote for are not going to win power at Westminster. So the only way, in principle anyway, of having more political influence is to take some powers away from Westminster or indeed to try to escape it altogether. So I think that whatever the shifts in identity, whatever's going on with younger people, that there is actually a, a quite acute structural dimension to the politics of the union in all parts of it. And I think that applies to England too, because the more that you have the possibility of a Labour government that is supported by SNP votes in particular, as we saw in the 2015 general election, the more seats the Conservatives are likely to win in England, and then the more that you get frustration in Scotland and Wales. So these are really quite dysfunctional dynamics. Until the Labour Party can recover its position, it's quite difficult to see how the union can be stabilised. And on the border question, Dan, is it a real issue? Is it a real issue? That's a fascinating question. I mean, I think it's a real border, but the Welsh government has used borders and boundaries much more systematically in its approach to managing the pandemic than has the UK government for England. So in Wales, people have been told to stay within their local authority areas, for example, at various stages during the pandemic, and at many more stages and more sort of systematically across Wales than was the case for England. So the kind of management of the Anglo-Welsh border, I think, is probably much more a kind of pragmatic approach to managing the movement of people and the spread of the virus around Wales. If you think about it in in a Welsh context, you know, early on in the pandemic, South East Wales had some of the highest rates of infection of anywhere in the UK. It possibly didn't get the coverage outside Wales, but, you know, when a lot of focus was on London, 
Newport, Southeast Wales had very high levels of infection. And lots of people living in Southeast Wales regularly go on holiday, go on day trips to places further west. So there were internal boundaries within Wales to stop people doing that from very early on in the pandemic. It's quite ironic in a sense because policing isn't devolved to Wales and yet the police forces in Wales have been working much more closely with the Welsh government through the pandemic than that constitutional reality might have you expect. So at the western end of the M4, police were checking people going further west. And in a kind of practical sense, that makes a quite good policy because you're talking about people moving from a densely populated area with high infection rates to a part of Wales which has very few ICU beds, you know, a much more scattered population, much less healthcare provision. And essentially, it's that kind of mindset, I think, on the Welsh side that animated the sense of how the Anglo-Welsh border should be managed. But the Anglo-Welsh border is also heavily populated. So, you know, for lots of people in terms of their practical day-to-day living, you know, it involves border crossings almost without knowing that they're happening. So that's one point. And another point is that the idea of an Anglo-Welsh border seems to have been taken as an enormous provocation by some politicians in England, particularly conservative politicians. The MP for Shrewsbury got very animated about his constituents being prevented from going to their nearest beaches in North Wales at one point in the pandemic. And I think someone pointed out that the nearest beaches in England were only a couple of miles further away. But the idea of a border, of an internal border, became a real provocation for him. And yet we've had kind of invented borders around, I don't know, Leicester as a city, for example, within England, but on much more of a sort of patchwork basis. So I think there's some interesting and important questions around there, which for me connect to the idea of kind of majority nationalism. So that what I would think of as an English form of Britishness, an Anglo-British view of the union, doesn't really recognize itself as a form of nationalism. You know, it tends to talk about others as divisive nationalists, whereas the kind of prerogatives of the constituents of a Conservative MP in Shrewsbury appear kind of natural. And what from a devolved point of view, just looks like fairly prosaic public policy is read as hugely provocative from the other side. And I think that's maybe a more kind of identity-based way of thinking about similar sorts of issues to the ones that Helen was just talking about. And I agree with her. I think the structural problems facing the UK union are just enormous and very difficult to think of fixes for them in any obviously achievable and incremental kind of a way. We will tweet links to some of Dan's recent papers at tppodcast underscore. You can also find details about the things we've discussed in our show notes, wherever you get this podcast. And next week, we're going to be talking to Mike Kenny, who's just issued a very important new report on the question that Dan ended with there. How does all this look inside Westminster? How does all this look now inside the Conservative Party? This week on History of Ideas, I'm talking about Robert Nozick, Anarchy, State, Utopia and The Sopranos. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 